Hello and welcome. This week, The Natural Selection presents Toxins. Hello, welcome to The Natural Selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order. We are Nick. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And I am Naomi. Nick, would you like to tell any new listeners who we are? Yeah, we are The Natural Selection, a group of taxonomists who want to bring their passion for nature into the wild. Each week we sort of gather and in the first section we talk about nature news from the past week. And in the second section we talk on a different theme and how that affects nature around the world. And this week's theme is toxins. How was your guys' weeks? Did you have any nice nature interactions? I saw a bird for the first time in like three months. No, not just any bird, not a pigeon, uh, not a, not one of those jackdaws either, but like a Eurasian jay in the woods. When you originally said that, I did wonder if you meant like it was a bird that you knew and hadn't seen it in three months. <laughs> You're like, Terry! <laughs> Welcome back, man. Good to see you. How was migration? <laughs> How was that uh, metabolic water production over the last couple of weeks? <laughs> Just throw back to one of our uh, previous last episode. You know, it's one for the hardcore fans. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been on a bit of a detox this week. Oh yeah, is that yeah. to do with our episode? Yeah, I haven't eaten anything poisonous or been bitten, so Nick, it's going I, well. I beg to differ. Oh, you think I've been bitten? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, a classic poison that we give ourselves, depending on how. Yeah, that's true. I did tell you I did last night. <laughs> Actually, I was reading about toxin resistance, which we'll get to later. But apparently some animals have developed a resistance. Oh, sorry. I don't mean to get into our uh, topic too soon, but some animals are immune to alcohol. I've heard the opposite for some humans, that there's a rare disease where your body, I think, produces alcohol by itself. And it's super rare, but people who have it are just always drunk. That must be just awful. Unless yeah. they never get a hangover, unless it's never over. Unless their work is never over. I can't tell whether they'd be a really good or really bad colleague. It could be anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Auto brewery syndrome or something? Is that what it's called? I think so. That sounds familiar. Um, what about you, Gnomes? Very unexciting. I haven't really done very much this week. Not any nature interactions that I am aware of. There was one day I went to the park and there was... So many squirrels, like a frightening number of squirrels. <laughs> Every time we walk down a new path, like maybe four or five squirrels would come out of the fence and they start walking towards us. You'd move on in like the next couple of feet and then more squirrels would appear and then you'd move on a bit. And it was a lot of squirrels. Fair amount where we usually go for walks, but it was, yeah, it was kind of startling. I don't know if there just was maybe less people that day and I noticed it more or something. I'm not sure. I think I nearly picked this as a news topic one week, but there was a squirrel that was repeatedly attacking New Yorkers. It wasn't rabid. It was just a really angry squirrel. You might have sent that to me, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking I was thinking about that squirrel. As all these squirrels were appearing, I was like, oh, no, am I going to get attacked? You know, I don't want to be on the news, <laughs> news article. <laughs> Not for that. No. Uh, it would be cool for me and Nick, though, because, like, 
we could be like, you know, that lady who was like mauled by squirrels to death. We knew her. <laughs> That's literally what I do with my family back in Arizona. I talked to them over the holidays and I was like, did you guys hear about that boar that stole that naked man's laptop? That was here. I was there. <laughs> that was my friend Terry. <laughs> He's a boar. Yeah, he has two kids, the boar children. <laughs> no, that's Naomi. <laughs> Hated by squirrels the world over. Uh, yeah, let's not let's not give him many ideas. I don't want to get attacked next time I go. <laughs> Maybe they thought you looked nuts. Wow. I'll never speak again. So I think with that, Nick, did you want to kick us off with the news? Yes. So I found something really cool this week. It also involves my favorite taxonomic bugbear. So my news is about electric eels, which are not eels. Uh, do you guys know what, actually, what they are? God, classic. Does it matter if <laughs> <laughs> they're not eels? What is real? What is eel? Um, <laughs> they are, in fact, knife fish. So they're not eels, but they are electric. I also learned reading this, I did a bit of background, I don't want to show off, but did my background reading, that um, up until 2019, they thought there was only one species of electric eel. But now they've been split into three different species of differing electric strength. So I thought that was quite amazing. The reason they're in the news this week is there's been a paper released that is about social predation in electric eels. So up until, yeah, the last few years when these these researchers noticed it, it was heavily assumed that electric eels hunted alone. So they would sort of swim up something, do their electric thing, and then, yeah, eat their prey. This was very commonly accepted. It, it would work. Like, yeah, why, why, why not? Like, that's why they have electricity. And also that social hunting and social predation is actually super rare in fish. But this researcher in Brazil, who I think was based in the Smithsonian uh, Natural History Museum, he noticed in a pool of electric eels that sometimes they would go off together and search after certain types of fish. So he thought, well, maybe they're doing social predation. And after a few years research, they've released this paper where they can confirm that, yes, that sometimes they have unexpected social predation. So they're otherwise solitary in the Amazon where they live. But in recent years, it shows that they can circle of small nectonic fishes and they launch a joint predatory high voltage strike on the prey ball also it's my first uh, time coming across the the phrase prey ball which i don't like i i don't like a lot of that nick the idea of electric <laughs> eels hunting in packs is <laughs> alarming it's quite it's, i would say it's quite shocking it took me a little while to kind of unpack everything i think yeah, i really got stuck on the the phrase prey ball it kind of took me a minute to to figure out what was going on. Can I ask what was the what was the amount of time? So that they said that they they do sometimes do it, but they generally hunt solitary. Do they give kind of a breakdown of? I don't think they gave a percentage. No, sorry. So the research that I looked at wasn't quite as electrifying, but I did find it very informative. So it was a piece of work that was published in Biology Letters. So this work was actually published in the middle of December because we didn't have any, any news in our Christmas episode. I decided that it would be okay to, to use a slightly older piece of research created by researchers from the University of Roehampton and the University of Sydney. This research was looking at communication between kangaroos and humans, and it involved kangaroos, and they were given a closed box that they had seen the researcher put food into. This type of experiment is known as the unsolvable problem task. 
in that my understanding is that basically the kangaroos actually aren't able to open the box on their own. So 10 out of the 11 kangaroos use gazes to communicate with the humans instead of trying to open the box themselves. And they also even used referential gazes. So they looked between the human and the box to try and communicate that the kangaroo wants the human to open the box. The kangaroos are social animals, so it would make sense they may be able to adapt their usual behavior to communicate with humans. But what is significant about this piece of work is that it was building on work looking at how domesticated animals interacted with humans. And a lot of this research really focused on domestic animals because they thought because they're domesticated, this is why their communication with humans has been developed. But actually, this suggests that this behavior has been overlooked in other animals because of this narrow focus on domestic animals. And this is the first marsupials to be studied in this way. So I thought this was quite fascinating looking at this, and hopefully it'll open up some other ideas about communications between animals and humans. And I think it's it's an important piece of research because communication in this way, particularly referential, where they're kind of indicating something to, to someone else, is, is quite important in, say, theory of mind, because it's indicating awareness of someone else's thinking. I mean, this really, I, I love research that, that dives into the importance of communicating with the gays. That's pretty important. That's important to me. My main takeaway from this was, <laughs> how did the University of Roehampton get that gig? Like, who yeah. the University of Sydney was sitting there being like, God, we really need an expert on kangaroos. Should we ring the Hampton? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't look into how, how they were particularly involved, but the work was done in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel the University of Sydney probably did a lot of the heavy lifting of the, <laughs> of the experimental side. You know, funny you say that, Nick, but I, I was at a conference a couple of years ago and I met a researcher there who was studying how hyena teeth uh, made marks on bones so that you could look at bones and say, oh, this mark was made by a hyena tooth or not. It's part of a larger, it's a, it's a piece in a mosaic. It's a larger, uh, there's a lot going on there. But the research that she was doing was in Michigan, but she was looking, she was using live hyenas. And yeah, but they had to get those hyenas over to Michigan. So Nick, what was your news for this week? I've got some great news. We have, um, a new president in the U.S. and also a new cave painting just dropped. Or <laughs> rather, was discovered, discovered, or rather seen by Westerners for the first time, uh, not this year, but four years ago. But it just well, the article about it was just released in Science, in Science Advances, and it's the world's oldest known cave painting. And it was found in a cave, obviously, in Indonesia on an island called uh, Sulawesi, and. The reason I brought it in today is because it depicts an animal. So the oldest known cave painting in the world is yet another animal. This time, though, not one of those beautiful uh, buffalo or horses or, you know, antelopes in Lascaux, but this time a stunning life-size pig. And not just any pig, it's Sus calabensis, the Sulawesi warty pig, which is the only pig species besides the one that we know that has been domesticated by humans. So I think mean, that's a that's a pretty cool. There's probably something there that there's the human drawing of the pig, and also it's been domesticated. There's some sort of inner inner relationship. But the painting was dated using a technique that involves dating the uranium and using its half life. But it was dating a deposit of calcite 
on top of the painting. So the date that we have is a fairly accurate date, but it's only for the calcium deposit, which must have taken some time to sort of lay itself over the cave painting. And the calcium deposit, 45,500 years. So the cave painting itself is older than that, which I think is pretty awesome to know that people were drawing realistic animals back in that time. And and here again, it's made out of red ochre, this painting, which is a common material for pigment in these cave paintings of this time and later. But it, even in this one, we see also the hand impressions where the they put you put the hand on the wall and then blow the ochre around it so it leaves a sort of outline of the hand next to the pig one of the reasons that it hadn't been found by westerners until recently is because it was located in a remote valley enclosed by sheer limestone cliffs an hour's walk from the nearest road and only accessible during the dry season because the whole cave entrance floods during the wet season and it was discovered by a grad student whose name was basran borhan thought that was a pretty cool story for the week if it's super inaccessible, I wonder what our ancestors were doing in that cave. It must have been like a really important place to go. Yeah, that's a that's actually a really good point. Like, I hadn't considered that. It's true. Although I suppose the topography could have changed a little bit in the last, if it's like at least 45,000 years old, it maybe wasn't as inaccessible or harsh. If the environment might have been a bit different as well, maybe it wouldn't have flooded. But I, I'm, I'm not sure. Apparently... This also is the earliest evidence of human settlement in the region. So I think, though, probably not that people went to the island and immediately settled near this remote cave, but that it's one of the few places where there's evidence left. But not just like a faraway destination, but people were camped out there and doing things. Cool. That was great. Thank you guys for sharing your news with us this week. Some really interesting things. But I think that brings us to the end of the news section. Please do join us after this short break, listeners, where we'll be back with our theme. This week, we're talking about toxins. So watch out. Hello, and welcome back. So this week, our theme is toxins. So we have some exciting and dangerous things to talk about this week. So Nick, I think you're going to kick us off by going through some different types of venoms. Yeah, Naomi. So I'm going to introduce a type of toxin, the venom, which is a toxin that's usually injected or inserted into an animal <laughs> using a claw, fang, tooth. We talked about these a bit last week, but I wanted to introduce the sort of main types and how they work in the bodies and what animals use them. I've had a streak of the listicle in me this week, and I've decided to introduce the five types of venoms you'll definitely need before experiencing excruciating pain or death. So we're going we're gonna to start with the one with an amazing name, necrotoxins, which cause necrosis in the cells that they encounter, i.e. death, not so pleasant. And the venom of most viper species, like the British adder and the brown recluse spider, which is one that we have in Arizona, is necrotic. And the brown recluse, just a little aside, if we're going to be talking about toxins and venoms today, I, I, I'm going to draw a little bit on my childhood where... Uh, they were prevalent and present in my life. But the brown recluse, I know because a friend of mine in school was bit by one, and he would show off every couple of weeks his uh, brown recluse bite, which looked like a lar- every week a larger and larger bullseye of black dying flesh on his leg. So it was like by the end about a foot a foot in diameter with that black center, and then like it's grayer as it goes out. It was pretty wild. Um, so that's necrosis. The cells are dying due to the, the venom there that's been injected by the spider's bite. But there's also a type of venom called myotoxin, 
which damages muscles. And it doesn't kill the cells, but it binds to a receptor in the muscle. They're basically like very small molecules that just they just go and attach to the, attach to the muscle receptor. Uh, and it prevents them from being able to contract. So this is found in rattlesnake venom, for example, and lizard venoms. And in prey species, it usually just paralyzes them. But in uh, larger species, it can cause muscle spasms and like freezing up of the limb, but it usually doesn't cause death, but a lot of pain. Cytotoxins are a third kind of venom, and these are found in things like honeybees and black widow spiders. So if you've ever been stung by a bee, you've had cytotoxin, and you'll notice you don't have full body spasms when you get stung by a bee, but localized pain. And that's because these cytotoxins kill individual cells. One that I don't know much about, because we don't, I think, have many of these things in uh, the desert, are nephrotoxins, which, do we remember our Latin roots? Nephro or nephr is the kidney. So these are toxins that primarily disrupt, do damage to the kidneys, and they're really common in sea snake venom. Not something that I've ever had to deal with, because I'm terrified of the ocean, and I won't be dealing with. Finally, the last thing that I want to introduce is one of the best known of all of the toxins, neurotoxin, which affects the nervous system of animals. And it, it does this in a lot of different ways, but the most common way is by disrupting ion channels. So it basically stops cells from being able to exchange substances with, with the inside and outside. And then that shuts down a lot of things from your nervous system to other types of uh, biochemical pathways in the body. But things that, that have this are, again, black widow spiders. So here's a key note. Most animals that use venom use a combination of different types of venoms. It's like a cocktail of like, bleh. Uh, you can quote me on that um, if you need. But other things that use these neurotoxins are scorpions, which are horrible. Let's not go there. Box jellyfish, centipedes, blue ringed octopus. And one that we're going to dive into, I think, in a little bit more detail, the cone snail. Yeah, so I was drawn to the cone snails because you don't really think of a snail being deadly. No, they seem pretty chill, to be honest. They're just crawling around. Yeah, but some of them, pretty deadly. Luckily for you, Nick, though, they're in the ocean, so you won't encounter them. I didn't I didn't want to scare you, but you know uh, sometimes sea snakes come onto land? Well, I'll just... How far can they come? Probably not to Arizona. <laughs> okay, but, then I'll just... And I think, I think we're safe in Berlin. But yeah, so cone snails are really, really interesting. So they're actually, they're a type of mollusk, as all snails are, along with things like octopodes. So the blue-ringed octopus, which is another venomous mollusk. But yeah, they do use a neurotoxin. And what's really interesting about this is the cone snails are a group of snails, and they are all venomous. But some of them are venomous enough to kill a human. So there are people, not alive today, who have been killed by snails. But yeah, so quite interesting. And they're quite weird anyway in the way that they hunt. So they can get quite big. They, they sort of vary in size. There's a large number of them. They can be up to about nine inches long, which is over 20 centimetres long. So these, some of these are big snails. And what they mostly do is they, they go along the seafloor and they're looking for either worms. The smaller ones will often eat sea worms and things like that. But the larger ones will actually hunt fish. And there's some interesting adaptions that they have. So they have an osphradium, which is something of great interest to malacologists or people who study mollusks. So some people think the, os- uh, the osphradium 
should be a defining feature of mollusks. But the problem is that there's two types of mollusks that don't have them. So it's a bit of an argument. But what's interesting about the cone snails is they have a very highly specialised ostradium, uh, much more specialised than any other group of gastropods or snails. And what it is, is in other snails, they're not entirely positive what it's up to, but they think it's to just sort of detect silt and dirt that's getting into the digestive tract. It's sort of a, a chemoreceptory organ. But in cone snails, this same organ, they think is how they hunt animals. So they're not hunting through vision. They're hunting through a chemoreceptory organ. Whoa. Yeah. And that's how they become aware of the animal that they're preying on. Yeah, so quite an amazing adaptation there. There's some famous ones. So obviously, because they're deadly, one of them lives off the coast of Australia. Uh, but generally, they all live in subtropical or tropical regions, generally in shallow seas, sometimes on reefs. And there's one that lives near Australia that's called the cigarette snail. And it's a bit of a joke because they say uh, that if you're stung by this creature, uh, you will only have enough time to smoke a cigarette before dying. Classic. But this isn't quite true. So for a lot of these things, you often hear that, like, it has enough poison to kill a human. And it does, but it would probably take about five hours to kill a healthy human, which is 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 actually quite a long time. And if you get medical care, you can survive. So you've got you got you should promptly seek medical care if you're bitten by one of these. You should never handle a live one because uh, handling will usually prompt them to sting what is holding them. And even if it's not deadly, that, that could cause you big, big problems. But they have beautiful shells. And how they hunt is they have, uh, so you know, yeah, the radula, the, um, the way that snails eat, they scrape their teeth along the top of things, yeah, to, to uh, get it into their mouth. Listeners, can I just say you're missing a really beautiful demonstration that Nick is doing with his hands, demonstrating how they scrape. <laughs> it's very accurate. Yeah, no, it's spot on. I thought <laughs> snail, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought uh, slow motion doggy paddle, but that also snail too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they have a specialized uh, uh, tooth of their radula, which is actually basically like a, a, a hypodermic needle. And this is attached to a venom sac. But also, this is also on the end of a viscous. So they have this sort of, it looks, you know, those snail eyes that like come out. It looks like that. So what it does is it comes out of the snail, all like sort of like looking like a snail, a bit like jelly, if you know what I mean. When it senses prey, it uses a very powerful muscle and it shoots it towards it and the needle goes in. And the reason its venom has to be so powerful is because if they're hunting fish, fish move pretty quickly. Snails don't. So they need to paralyze it as soon as possible. So that's why it has enough venom to kill a human, because what it's actually trying to do is instantly paralyze a fish. And it will hold on this paralyzed fish and then pretty much bring it to their mouth, eat it and then vomit out all the indigestible stuff like bones. I was so along for this ride, Nick, until you hit hypodermic needle attached to a venom sack on a proboscis. <laughs> uh, and then it just got more and more horrifying from there. Thank you. That's all right. I thought you'd like it. But as I said, in the sea. So, um, yeah, all your nightmares will come true if you ever go in the sea, Nick. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be staying here on dry land. That is cool. I have wanted to talk about a creature that is slightly larger than a snail. Quite large, in fact, for a lizard. The biggest one that we know of. But I wanted to ask you guys a question to start off with. Have you ever heard that Komodo dragons 
have a really dirty mouth and that they use their toxic yeah, bacteria. <laughs> yes, they, they're filthy. And <laughs> Worse they, than sailors. <laughs> they use these toxic bacteria to kill their prey. Have you guys heard this? I've, I've, I, yeah, I think that I've heard that in the rumor mill. Uh, okay. But if you are, are thinking, mm, then you're right, because it's a myth. That's not true. <laughs> so it was originally proposed by Walter Offenberg. He moved to Indonesia in the 60s, and he wrote a book on the Komodo dragon and their behavior in 1981. And in this, he noticed that prey like buffalo would die from fatal infections after a Komodo bite. And he stated that this is because they use toxic bacteria to, to kill their prey. So this idea has been widely accepted, even though it's not, it hadn't really been proven experimentally in any way. This is quite an anecdotal piece of information. But in 2009, researchers led by Brian Fry published in PNAS, and they tested this idea. So they looked at the feeding ecology of the Komodo dragon, Varanus komodoensis. Uh, so this is the largest lizard that we know of. It's on the Komodo Islands in Indonesia. And they found some pretty cool things about the skull and the bite of the Komodo dragon. So they found that it had a relatively weak bite force. And then instead of being good at biting down hard, what they found that their skull was adapted for was for pulling. So they have really sharp lacerated teeth. And what they suggested that they bite into their prey and they pull back. So they basically create a really large gaping wound. These researchers also found that they have venom glands and venom. That's why they fit into this week's theme. So the venom that they have acts to potentiate these wounds. So it acts as an anticoagulant. And as Nick mentioned, it's a cocktail of different things. So it also induces shock in their prey. So basically, they've created this giant wound that won't stop bleeding. And also, the prey will go into shock. But as well as this, the researchers also want to look, do they have microbes as well? And basically, what they found is that they don't have anything that you wouldn't find in another kind of carnivorous animal like this. And they did study it on captive Komodo. So they were like, maybe in the wild, they might have other strains. But it would be odd that if this was a realistic evolutionary strategy, that they wouldn't have a way to make their mouth grow this toxic bacteria even in captivity. So it doesn't seem like the bacteria have anything to do with it. Well, not in the way that Offenberg thought. However, having said this, microbes may still play a role in taking down larger prey. Um, so not in the way that it was originally suggested. But when lizards take on large prey, they're too big to kill outright. So the wound wouldn't kill it straight away. But the injured buffalo, say, and also buffalo is introduced to this area. So they, they wouldn't be kind of the natural sort of prey of the Komodos. The injured buffalo would probably seek relief in watering holes. So this would probably be stagnant water. That's not really moving. And this would be like a perfect environment for some very nasty microbes. So, you know, probably was true that these buffalo would die because they get microbes. But it's not from the bite. It's just from the stagnant water. Another interesting thing that they found in this research was that they looked at the Komodo dragon's relative, the extinct Varnus priscus uh, megalania. Um, so this was a really large reptile. So I think this was kind of the ancestor to Komodo dragons. It was very large. And they think that based on its skull, that it also would have been venomous. And then they think that this probably would have been the largest known venomous animal to have ever lived. Because I know it's something that I have heard that actually people say, you know, they're not venomous, it's just bacteria. But I thought I would refute it here. They are venomous. It helps them kill their prey using venom. 
I don't know what I expected from our episode on toxins, but I am truly unsettled. Yeah. A little peek behind the curtain. This uh, this topic was your choice, Nick. And I've watched your face throughout this episode just get more and more horrified. <laughs> I mean, sorry, guys. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. I will say that Venom does some interesting things. Toxins do interesting things. Not least of which that it allows a very slow snail to eat very fast fish or a lizard to eat water buffalo. But <laughs> let's go even farther. I would like to talk about a species that is the size of our hand. It could fit in our hand, and its prey is the size of water buffalo. You know, at times it could also be smaller things, but I'm talking about the vampire bat. So vampire bats, when they come up in, you know, the context of science communication and and wildlife documentaries, the thing that usually comes up about them is that they use anticoagulants to keep the blood moving in their prey as they suck their blood late at night. And then you see them like sitting there like little leeches with wings, lapping at the blood of their the pig that they're standing on or whatever. And the pig is sleeping, unaware that its blood is being drained like a Victorian monster. But really, uh, these anticoagulants, it's yes, they're anticoagulants, but they're toxins uh, is really what they are. I mean, they're acting in a way that um, it affects the biochemistry of the other animal. And because they're injected using the fangs of the vampire bats, or we could just say teeth, because fangs is just a fancy word for teeth, they are venom. So vampire bats use venom, and these anticoagulants that they use are vasodilators. So vasodilators naturally exist in many, especially mammal bodies, they exist in our bodies, and they help us with our smooth muscle contractions, help us digest things. Um, it's what basically runs our heart, our a, a complex network of things that include vasodilators. So the vasodilator basically means it opens up the blood vessels. And the anticoagulant vasodilators in vampire bat venom and also in things like horse flies, which also drink blood, they basically stop the, the coagulation cascade in the blood. So they prevent things when the blood is exposed to air, usually it clots up. Some proteins do some stuff, and I'm not a biochemist or a physiologist, but basically this prevents that from happening and the blood keeps flowing. Now, what I thought was maybe the most interesting part of this is the research that's being done on this. Okay, it's interesting just from a biological point of view, but also maybe medicinally important to find out what exactly these anticoagulants are that that vampire bats use, because if the vampire bats have them and flies have them, but they are different and they work in different ways. It's interesting to see like what these biochemicals are doing and maybe we can use them medicinally. But the key here is the name of their, their have been the, the research that I was reading found two different anticoagulants, venoms in the vampire bat saliva or sorry, in the vampire bats. And one of them is called X, which is sufficiently creepy for me for a vampire bat uh, anticoagulant. And the other one, Draculin. I can't help but feel they named Draculin first. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, oh, there's another one. Uh, X. X. Just call it X. Factor X. (laughs) There's Draculin and Toxin 2. (laughs) I will say that maybe it's not... This naming of uh, anticoagulant venoms is not as interesting as the naming of genes, where you get things like Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, I found really funny was I was looking when I was looking at the cone snails. Uh, their venom has names, but it just made it sound like American fraternities because they were like Alpha Beta, uh, <laughs> Mu, 
<laughs> no, no, Dracula is where it's at. Although, yeah, you're right. All this talk of of venom and toxins, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a bit nervous. But there, it's not all without hope. There are ways of resisting venom, isn't there? So yeah, there are things that evolve resistance to toxins. Because I was reading an article on this, scientists sort of discovered by accident that one animal was resistant. A wood rat. They were trying to feed a rattlesnake, so they gave it a wood rat. And normally, a rattlesnake, famously quite deadly, the rattlesnake bit the wood rat, and the wood rat just sort of got on with it. Sometimes... Classic yeah, wood rat. <laughs> it would even fight back. So it would, like, scratch at the rattlesnake, and sometimes even kill it. So this is quite amazing. But yeah, there's a general evolutionary pressure to become resistant to toxins. But what I found really interesting... Generally, you would think that the things that would evolve to be resistant to toxins was prey. Things like this wood rat. So, like, there's a rattlesnake coming after it, so it would um, it would, be, it would evolve resistance so it wouldn't get eaten. But interestingly, much more common is predators evolving resistant to toxin. And I saw a beautiful quote about this. This is from Daniela Drabeck, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Minnesota. Basically, she says... Venomous creatures are pretty wimpy. I mean, snakes are small-boned little bags of meat. Even venomous snakes only have one pointy end. Same goes for cone snails, wasps, jellyfish, ants. Take away their magical weapons and they're almost pitiful. For a predator, this is true. If you want to hunt snakes, like, if their bite can't harm you, well, so they're not going to strangle you, are they? They don't have legs. They don't no. have arms. <laughs> like, jellyfish? Jellyfish are very silly. I mean, there are some jellyfish that don't sting, and they're just goop. They're just yeah. goop sitting there, ready to be eaten. Leatherback turtles regularly eat venomous jellyfish, but they don't have a special sort of resistance uh, in their genes or anything. Uh, generally, their resistance is their skin's quite thick, and they've got a shell. What works, works. Yeah, so literally the jellyfish uh, venom can't get into them, so they can just munch away on pretty venomous jellyfish. Huh. But yeah, that sort of... As I thought about it, as this pointed out to me, I was like, yeah, that does make sense. And I can think of examples. But yeah, I, I would have assumed that the evolutionary pressure would be on um, prey, not predators. But it's actually the other way around. So I'm glad that you presented these both in different ways, Nick, because I have some examples of this evolution of resistance, both in the predator and in the prey. And I guess I'll start with the, the predator developing resistance. And one of my favorite examples of this is the king snakes, which I don't think really exist in i mean there are in ireland there's no they're not so but uh in the u.s there's there's a lot of different kinds and and they mostly are they're constrictors they're not venomous and their main prey is other snakes and which seems like you said kind of intense until you realize oh if you aren't worried about the venom then no problem they can just wrap around it seems though strange that the snake could strangle another snake by constricting it and yeah, then that eating does... it it's, it's kind I of like putting a sock inside happening. of another sock <laughs> uh, <laughs> once it's eaten. But it, but apparently the the this is um it's particular in king snakes. They've evolved resistance. So throughout the whole king snakes, the king snakes whole life, it's about the same level of resistant to the venoms of the snakes that they eat. Unlike immunity, which is a response that increases with um, exposure over the life of an animal. So that's that's really common in a lot of predators and prey, is developing immunity to toxin and venoms, but in the king snake it's evolved. So, which is great because really their, their main prey species, rattlesnakes, copperheads, 
their venom has no effect on the king's snake and they can just eat them. But because humans are doing some crazy things to habitats and introducing species, when invasive species that aren't new or that are new to the area or ranges shift because of stuff that we're doing or even just general climate change, new types of venomous species are encountering these king snakes and the king snakes don't have any resistance to the venoms of these other snakes. So in places where king snakes have been exposed or interact with other venomous snakes that they haven't evolved around, they're really vulnerable to these snake, the snake's venom. So that's an interesting sort of the saga of the king snake. Can I quickly tag on to that? Because I feel like we've done a really good job this episode of making snakes look much less scary <laughs> than they are. And I read a brilliant quote about snake resistance and that many venomous snakes are resistant to venom because quite often they bite themselves oops so they have to be resistant to their own venom (laughs) but let's switch for a moment to the other side of things back to prey for a second think about some prey that have evolved resistance to their predators that have venom so nick you mentioned the wood rat and another good example of this is the california ground squirrel has developed a resistance specifically to northern pacific rattlesnake venom this is the type of immunity resistance that that we talked about the king snakes not having or in contrast to the king snakes so with these this is basically looking at local populations of squirrels and seeing that in places where squirrels live near a lot of rattlesnakes their populations are high, have higher resistance to the venom of the snakes. And in turn, those snakes in those populations have a higher toxicity of their venom. The common phrase to talk about in this sort of discussion is an evolutionary arms race going on between the resistance in the squirrel populations and the toxicity of the snakes. And it looks like right now the snakes are in the lead, but it's only a matter of time. So we've discussed a lot of animals that have venom so far in the episode, but Nick, did you want to talk a little bit about some plants that are also toxic? Yes, I did. Often when you think of venom or, or toxic things, you do think of animals, but perhaps one of the most famous things, especially in England and Ireland, and I know they have been introduced into North America, but they were a big part of my childhood, I don't know about you gnomes, is Urtica dioica, or the stinging nettle. So yeah, they are native to Europe and North Africa and Asia, and generally, if you brush past them, they give you a little bit of a sting. It's quite unpleasant. And how they do this is, is they mainly inject you with things like histamines and serotonin. But because of this, they have quite a prominent place in culture because they are quite annoying. There's a few sayings around them. So have you ever heard the, the idea that you should grasp the nettle as hard as you can? Mm, that sounds weirdly erotic. And also, no, I haven't heard that. Well, have you heard that, Gnomes? I think so, yeah. So this goes to the idea that how this toxin is actually injected is they have these fine sort of hairs. They look like hairs, but they're actually tubes that if you um, if they go into your skin, they will release the toxin. And that's what causes these sort of like stinging and little bits of bumps on your skin. But if you grasp them very tightly, the idea is that you're actually crushing them rather than letting them uh, go into your skin. So if you grab a nettle as hard as you can, you're less likely to be stung than if you just gently brush it. So it's sort of used as a metaphor to be like, yeah, just give it your all and you'll be all right. Is that true? It is. There's, there's an element of truth to that. And I have done it where if you, if you do grab a leaf, you won't necessarily get stung. But if you just brush it over your skin, you will. There's also an amazing phrase that I won't even try and pronounce the Hungarian. 
but it, it finds its way into sort of common parlance. One of them was um, in Hungarian. They say thunder never strikes the nettle. That's so poetic. I love that. Isn't it beautiful? And it means something we might say would be like the devil looks after his own. It's the, yeah, uh, bad things can, bad people get away with bad things. So it's like thunder never strikes the nettle. I kind of feel bad for the nettle. It's just doing its own thing, trying to be like, don't eat me, you know? Yeah, and even then we do. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's nettle is used a lot in like teas and soups and like salads and things. Yeah, it was, of, it was often used in traditional medicine, historically. You can even use it in creating fibres. So historically, they thought that it was actually introduced to Great Britain by the Romans. And even in medieval times, this was sort of stated as a fact. It's like the Romans brought the nettles with them because they liked to eat them and use them in, to, in their medicine. But they actually found a Bronze Age burial where there were fibres created from nettles. And they'd been used to sort of make twine. They used a string, and some people say, well, maybe they traded it with mainland Europe, and that's how they got the string, but it's more likely that, yeah, they just use local nettles. So they are quite useful. They can be made into different things. But, yeah, their main famous thing is that they sing. Um, and in German, uh, if you say you're in a lot of trouble, they say you're sitting in nettles. So famously, if you do get stung by a nettle, what is, what, what is the correct response? supposed to rub it with dark leaves Cry. yeah you the skepticism that i can hear dripping <laughs> from your voice there is is very apt because there's absolutely no evidence that dark leaves do anything but interestingly the reason they think that people have associated with them is they grow in the same uh, environment and soil conditions as the nettles so chances are if you got stung by one there would be a dock leaf nearby and it might be a placebo, but also they think just the act of rubbing it, because it's mainly itchy, if, if you're rubbing it with a leaf, that might just help. <laughs> Speaking of suffering, this podcast isn't finished. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the Salem witch trials. Now, bear with me for a second on how this gets into our theme. For a little bit of background, in 1692, a small Puritan village of Salem was plagued by a spate of witchcraft accusations. After two young girls, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, exhibited severe convulsions and other strange symptoms, the doctor diagnosed them as having been bewitched. And then soon after this, other villagers began showing symptoms. As a result of these trials, over the course of about a year, 19 people were hanged, one person was crushed to death, and five people died in prison. But the reason I want to talk about it in this episode, so in 1976, Linda Caporell was the first to suggest that ergotism may have been involved. Ergot poisoning is due to the ingestion of a crop that's been contaminated with a fungus. So the fungus is Claviceps purpurea. And so how it works is the ergot alkaloids, they have a wide range of biological activities. They affect circulation and on neurotransmission. Ergotism seems to form on rye and other types of grains like wheat after there's been a severe winter and a damp spring. And these are conditions that actually match what was documented for 1691. So the symptoms actually seem to match what the afflicted people who, who thought that they'd been afflicted by witchcraft had. So, and it includes symptoms such as convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions, uh, the sensation of crawling under the skin, and in extreme cases, gangrene of the extremities. Severe hallucinations can also be a symptom because the fungus contains lysergic acid. And if you have heard of this, it's because it's precursor used to make LSD. So, yeah, like I said, these symptoms match with the symptoms of the afflicted. 
And also a lot of the, the people who were afflicted were young girls and women, and they may have had weaker immune systems. I've also heard that based on maybe like if you had stomach ulcers or different things like that, you were more likely to get affected by this ergotism. I will say that, you know, there are definitely some things that do match up. But in general, like from what I've been reading about this with historians, it seems to be quite out of favor. Like there are things that don't quite match up. So I think it's an interesting idea that I thought I'd bring up. And I, I, I don't want to seem like I'm, you know, disregarding a lot of the other things that were definitely involved, particularly like the political climate and the religious climate, because there definitely was extremely high levels of prejudice involved in this as well. And I'm sure there were other things like hysteria and, and, and perhaps even fraud involved as well. It's, you know, obviously very difficult to to know what exactly happened. It's probably impossible to ever piece apart exactly what went on. It's all based on just like the testimonies they have. I think that it's it's sort of an interesting idea that maybe something like this, you know, started off this really intense period in history. That maybe it was a fungus that started kind of these symptoms um, that someone attributed supernatural origins to. I know this isn't what you're saying exactly, but the it is a sort of it'd be a good headline to say like Salem witch trials caused by a whole town having a bad acid trip. But also, I think as well, that was actually the first poison that we talked about in this episode. I think we talked a lot about venom, so brought in a little bit of poison. <laughs> Thanks, Naomi, for bringing the poison today. Uh, what a lovely gift. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Oh, a bilingual pun from Nick here. It's good. Oh, I didn't, I didn't get it. That gift in German is poison. Ah. That brings an end to our intense and dangerous episode all about toxins. Please do join us again next week where we'll be talking all about climbing. Thank you guys for joining us and thank you for bringing some interesting topics this week. And with that, we'll say goodbye. 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 Yeah, but they had to get those hyenas over to Michigan. It's like, oh, that's not that's not right. Yeah, I mean th- that's a big problem because um, they famously wouldn't get along with the Detroit Lions. I don't get it. The, the, the American football team. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> classic. <laughs> Good. Just cut me in there, uh, <laughs> straight to the lap. Ha! Sports. Ha. <laughs> I love sports. <laughs>